Hello and welcome to the special college football conference championship preview here on the Big Recon on Sports. I'm your host, I'm the Big Recon, and I just want to say thank you again to everybody who either watched live or watched after the fact our fanatical preview of the 115th, excuse me, I kept saying 105th, the 115th playing of the game between Ohio State and that team up north, a resounding 62-39 to win for our Buckeyes setting up this coming weekend against Northwestern in the Big Ten Championship game. Uh, so for this episode, we're going to go over all the Power 5 Championship games, and then we had our first question asked on Facebook, so I'm going to go through, it was actually many questions, so I'm going to go through each one of the questions that our good friend Dominic Angie submitted to us. And uh, Dom, I hope you listen to this one. I'll post when it's up on Facebook, and that way you can uh, hear my answers to everything you wanted to know. So we're going to start out West with the Pac-12 title game. And this is one of the two games I got perfectly right in our college football preview episode way back during week one of the season. This is number 17 Utah against number 11 Washington. Washington coming off the big win in the Apple Cup over a very highly ranked uh, Washington State team. Um, This is the best defense in the conference against what I said was the most complete team in the conference. Jake Browning has proven, in my opinion, all year that he is the best QB in the conference. I know the guy from Washington State, uh, Minshew, had a lot of Heisman talk, but that's flashy numbers against lesser opponents, in my opinion, from what I saw on their schedule. Browning has proven time and time again he's the steadying force to lead this team. Let's be very honest. The winner of this game is not getting into the playoff. It's not happening. There are too many teams ahead of them, too many teams with better resumes ahead of them, and this is either going to be a two-loss conference champion or a three-loss conference champion. Um, Washington has a great defense, but more importantly, they're starting to run the ball. If you caught any highlights from the Apple Cup last week, the biggest play to ice the game, and I say that tongue-in-cheek because it was snowing in the Pacific Northwest last week, was a running play that looked almost like a blown assignment in a, in one of the gaps. Both teams uh, boast a 1,000-yard back, but it's whoever's going to stop the run that's going to win this thing. Um, both quarterbacks haven't turned the ball over and both defenses are giving up less than 20 points a game. I I believe this is going to come down to the best quarterback on the field. And I believe that's Jake Browning. I like Washington to win a close game. This game is Friday night. So tune in is why we're doing this on a Thursday. It's tomorrow night that we're, the game will be played. Um, that takes us down south to the SEC. Now, the um, SEC championship game is the second one I picked correctly. Number one, Alabama against number four, Georgia. This is the game that most experts are saying don't matter. If you listen to ESEC, PNFL, both teams, they believe, will get in no matter what happens in this game, which, in my opinion, is crap. Bama has once again played less than stellar competition all year, with very rare exception. They're having their backs padded for beating all the teams in front of them, which is what you're supposed to do. But on Alabama's resume, that includes 
the Raging Cajuns of Louisiana Lafayette, Arkansas State, a Citadel team that was tied with them at halftime, and a four-loss Auburn in the, the Iron Bowl. Georgia did play a couple of tough games. Um, Georgia Tech is always tough for them. But here's the bottom line. They had Middle Tennessee State, UMass, and a 20-point blowout loss to num- to a three-loss LSU as their only black mark on their resume. But this is the most anticipated game. Why? Because it's the rematch of last year's championship game. Uh, this is the most anticipated game south of Mason-Dixon since that game last year. If Georgia's defense can play the way I think they can, they can get the job done. But here's the difference. They can't let up this time. There's no coasting. They learned last year in that championship game that they need to bury Alabama in order to win this game. I'm not changing my pick, and here's why. Because for the first time all year, Alabama is playing a team that can match up with them both offensively and defensively. Georgia will control the clock by running the football and will win the SEC for the second year in a row. And then it goes into chaos. We're going to stay down south. We're going to go to number two Clemson against Pitt in the ACC championship game in Charlotte. Uh, Trevor Lawrence was the right choice with Clemson. I didn't like the way it went down. I thought Kelly Bryant got a raw deal. But Dabo proved he was a smarter guy in this one. Lawrence has taken that that offense to a higher level. Um, Pitts had an up-and-down season, but they get to the title game against Clemson, and many people are writing them off. I want to remind everyone listening, the last time these two teams played, Pitt beat Clemson at Clemson. The two main differences between that game and this year is that Clemson is the best defensive line in all of college football. Four possible first-round draft picks on that defensive line. And Travis Etienne has been huge this year. Over 2,000 yards uh, from scrimmage. I really think this is going to be the one blowout. I think Clemson wins this game huge. And if they don't, again, record is being thrown out the window, and you got to look at who they're playing to earn that record. Clemson did have the one tough out-of-conference road game against Texas A&M in College Station. Look, I still think Clemson's going to win big. Um, I, I didn't think Clemson would be playing in the championship game against this team, but they are. This will be Pitt, Clemson, obviously, and I think Clemson wins big. The Big 12. The Red River game for the Big 12 championship. Tom Herman in his second year at Texas gets his team into the conference championship game to play an Oklahoma team that they beat by three points in the Red River game at the State Fair. Can he beat Lincoln Riley twice in one season? It is a distinct possibility. And why is that? Because Texas is one of the few Big 12 teams that can play a little defense. I don't know what happened to TCU this year or the rest of the conference, but they just decided not to play defense after a while. This is the team that can play it. Oklahoma doesn't. 
let's be real honest. If you watched any of the uh, debate shows or anything between Fox Sports and ESPN the last few days, you've learned that Oklahoma has the 127th ranked pass defense in the country and the 120, I believe it's eighth total defense in the country. That's not good, especially against a guy in Tom Herman who has helped coach quarterbacks who didn't play until the conference championship game to beat three of the best teams in the country in successive weeks. Successive, successive games, not successive weeks. If Texas can keep Kyler Murray contained like they did last time, all chaos, is, it, this is the one that can really throw the committee into a tailspin. I like Texas. I like Texas because they can bring the defense just a little bit more than Oklahoma can. This is going to cause all the people in that committee room who have hair on their head, unlike me, to lose the rest of it. Because now, if everybody else wins out, you've got no choice but to do the next part. And that brings us to our fifth and final of the Power 5 games. Number 21 Northwestern against the number 6 team in the country. The Ohio State Buckeyes. Let's start here. Pat Fitzgerald should be coach of the year. What a phenomenal job he has done. Northwestern in the conference championship game, I think, is the best story in college football. Not Notre Dame, not Tua. Northwestern, who really hasn't been a player since the late 90s when Fitzgerald was an all-American linebacker there. The... um. That being said, they haven't played many offenses that are this talented. But Ohio State is playing their second talented defense. Last one they played, they dropped 60 on. They're going to have to run the ball to get the job done. They're going to have to be disciplined. And they're going to have to understand the big plays they got last week are most likely not going to happen against this team. I do, however, like the way Ohio State's defense played last week. Did they give up 39 points? Yes. Did they give up a few in garbage time when the game had been decided for a while? Yeah, they did. I do believe that this game will propel the Buckeyes into the playoff. Dwayne Haskins today was named the Big Ten Offensive Player of the Year and Quarterback of the Year. And now he's going to lead his team to a Big Ten title. Ohio State beats Northwestern by multiple scores. I'm not going to say they're going to do what they did to Oklahoma, uh, to Wisconsin a couple years ago and drop 59 on them. But I believe they win by multiple scores. If this goes the way I see it, that committee room Saturday night is going to be an insane thing to watch. So, to recap, the Pac-12 championship game, we have Washington. The Pac, or excuse me, the SEC championship game, uh, Georgia. The ACC, we have Clemson. The Big 12, Texas. And the Big 10, we have Ohio State. Um, I'm not going to make another prediction on my final four. Um, I really do believe that this, that four conference, three conference champions and Notre Dame are going to be in. It's 
scratch, I am going to make a prediction of my final four. If it goes the way I'm saying, your final four looks like this. Clemson would become the one seed. Georgia the two. I believe Notre Dame stays the three. And Ohio State would become the four seed. So we'd have a Clemson-Ohio State rematch in um, from the Fiesta Bowl a few years ago. And we will have a Notre Dame-Georgia semifinal as well. We will break down the college football playoff in our next episode, which will come to you sometime next week. Selection is a Sunday. The committee will have its... Um, will have its four out by, I believe, it's, it starts at noon, I believe, on Sunday. Uh, and it's a four-hour escapade, and they have that done pretty quickly in the afternoon. So as I mentioned in the beginning of the uh, show, we did have our first big question on Facebook in regards to our show, and it came from a childhood friend of my family uh, by the name of Dominic Angie from Cleveland, now, Dominic and I bonded over the New York Mets, who are in the news today, and I'm going to cut this in. It looks like the Mets are closing in on a deal that would send Robinson Cano and Edwin Diaz to the New York Mets for top prospects. Uh, there's been talk of Jeff McNeil, who came up and was a big player at the end of the year for the Mets. Jared Kelenic, who was the number one pick of the Mets this year, also may be included in that deal. There's talk Jay Bruce would be sent to Seattle to clear room in the outfield. I'm on the fence about this deal. When it comes through, we will hop on Facebook Live either tomorrow or sometime over the weekend when this is finalized. Right now, it's all speculation. It just came across ESPN on my phone as I sit here. So we're going to go to the questions he left me on Facebook. Now, I'm going to say... A couple of these questions are funny. A couple of them are very insightful. So we're going to start with question number one. Number one, in uh, the Michigan defense on Sunday, where was it? Dom, if you watched the whole game, which I'm pretty sure you did, what you noticed was Ohio State picking apart that defense two ways. The first way was the crossing routes, which with the speed Ohio State brings to the table at the wide receiver position, not just with Paris Campbell, K.J. Hill, Johnny Dixon, but even Chris Olave, the true freshman out of California, they bring guys that not many people in the Big Ten can keep up with. And when you have all the scrum in the middle of the field with the crossing routes, you see guys get open. And when you have a quarterback like Dwayne Haskins, who is now authored the single greatest season in Big Ten history, you're going to get big plays like that. The second thing they did is when Don Brown made the adjustments to try and take away some of the crossing routes and the man-to-man -man on the outside. I'm sorry, not to take away the man-to-man -man on the outside. When he took away the crossing routes, he had to go man-to-man -man on the outside because they weren't getting pressure on Dwayne Haskins either. What they did was they ran real routes, the wheel routes, the big one with Demario McCall out of the backfield, the big um, gainer to get down inside the five before the pitch out on the option to Mike Weber. They did the pop pass with Paris Campbell, who is one of the fastest dudes I've ever seen run on a football field, having watched it live in uh, the Horseshoe in September. So that's where the D was. It wasn't so much the defense wasn't good that day, because, I mean, they weren't, but it wasn't their fault per se. This was game planning and scheming and taking advantage of matchups. 
So take heart. Michigan is a very good team and a good program. The difference is Ohio State is speed burners on that side of the ball. They were outrunning dudes in the Big 12, which is a track meet every week. Don't get too mad. If Ohio State would have played to the level they played at on Sunday all year, no one would have thought Michigan was going to be in this game, let alone come within two points of taking the lead. Question number two, where can I see David Wright working in the Mets organization? Honestly, I see him taking Terry Collins' job, and I see him overseeing the minor league operation. David doesn't want to be a manager. Uh, He's made that very clear at the end of the year when we said goodbye to him. Could he be a hitting coach? Probably. I don't see him taking a major league position, to be very honest with you. I see him working with the Mets minor leaguers who he grew to love when he was rehabbing for, you know, basically three years. So that's where David's going to go. Um, I can see him if they ever take the Norfolk Tides back as the AAA team becoming their manager so he can be home by his family. Why won't Fred Wilpon sell the team? It's very simple. And it's something people don't remember. Fred Wilpon bought this team in 1980. Almost 40 years he's owned the Mets. In that time... We have won division titles in 86, 88, 06, and 15. We have been to the playoffs 86, 88, 99, 2000, 6, and 15, and 16. We have been to three World Series in that amount of time. Please understand, I don't like some of the things they've done either. But you can't sit back and just because they're not the Yankees say that they're not successful. Dom, you know I love home. You live in a town that didn't sniff the playoffs from the 50s to 1995. They said it a couple years ago when they were doing some work on MLB Network. The most successful expansion franchise of all time. There's a reason for that. Do I think he should sell the team? Yes. Only because he's getting older, and if his son takes his, takes the helm, we're all going to be in trouble. Do I think he doesn't want to win? No, I don't think he doesn't want to win. I think he wants to win. People say he doesn't spend money. People say he doesn't do this, doesn't do that. Let me tell people a thing that people don't understand. Fred Wilpon, Saul Katz, his son, and their families wrote a check for City Field. It's a billion-dollar stadium. I know you've been there. I know you love it. So, yes, they had to recoup some money. They were taken by Bernie Madoff just as bad as the other people were, if not worse, because then they had to pay fines back because they made money on the scheme because Bernie was an old friend. But what can't be denied is that when the Mets felt they had to spend money to compete every year, they opened the checkbook. Pedro. Beltran. Delgado. The contracts to Wright and Reyes when they were still largely unproven players. They let Frank Cashin, when they bought the team with Nelson Doubleday, build the team in his image, bringing in players like George Foster, Mike Torres, older guys who would carry the load while he built the farm system that brought us Wally Backman, Lenny Dykstra, Mookie Wilson, Hubie Brooks, 
Daryl Strawberry, Kevin Mitchell. I can go on and on and on. He has allowed the front office to make deals that have made this franchise winners immediately. July 15th, July 15th, June 15th, excuse me, 1983. Rick Ownby, Neil Allen for Keith Hernandez. May of 1998, Eddie Arnold, Jeff Getz, and Preston Wilson to Miami for Mike Piazza. The two young pitchers, one of them being Michael Fulmer, to Detroit for Ioannis Cespedes. He's done what he's had to do to get the team to the World Series. He's done it a few different times. You ask me about the Mets and the Indians. Here's the talk and why it's happening. The Mets need a catcher. Um, Darno is injury prone. Darno is coming off of Tommy John. And Kevin Ploiecki, for as much as I like him, is not an everyday catcher. Mezzarocco is not the answer. Johnny Manel was never the answer. I don't believe Tomas Nito is ready. And for sure, they don't have one in the minor league system. Jan Gomes is a good catcher. The Indians have needs the Mets can fill. I don't believe a deal between the Mets and Indians and the Indians is going to happen, mostly because it looks like they're going to trade Corey Kluber to the Dodgers. Number five was a two-point two-part question. What do I think went wrong in the 2015 World Series? Where we held the lead in every game. Well, let me tell you what I thought went wrong that could have set the tone for the entire series. Ioannis Cespedes should not have been playing center field in game one. Juan Lagares should have. Cespedes in left. Granderson in right. And you DH Michael Conforto. Uh, I believe Michael Kadire played left field or DH that night. You didn't need Kadire in the lineup. The Royals set the tone for that series coming from behind and winning game one the way they did. Uh, game two, we had the lead and Jake pitched his worst postseason game that season. Of course, game three we win. Game four was a Murphy error. And I don't know how you fix that one in there. And, of course, Game 5, I have no fault with it all. I see no fault in it. Matt Harvey should have started the ninth inning. But the Royals set the tone in that series, winning Game 1 the way they did. One simple change. Juan Lagares in center field. That is what would have won us the World Series, I firmly believe. Um, as far as keeping the same guys in 2016 as 2015... I don't know if you remember, but the 2016 Mets were injury-ravaged. That's why it was necessary to bring in Jose Reyes. Um, that's why we spent some time without Cespedes early in the year. Rene Rivera was our main catcher most of the year. We lost DeGrom. We lost Harvey. We lost Wheeler. We lost Mats. That was when Seth Lugo and Robert Gesellman were the two main cogs in the rotation coming down the stretch. Uh, Michael Conforto, after a hot start, was a no-show for a while. It wasn't about keeping the same guys. It was about they were opportunistic when they won their games to get into the wild card and host the game. They ran into Madison Bumgarner, who has made a career out of pitching well in October, and Thor was good that night. If not for a forkball that never dipped, or a splitter, excuse me, that never dipped, maybe they win in extra innings. Don't know. Bobby Bonilla. Here's the thing about Bobby Bonilla. I don't have a problem with the contract. What people don't realize is the Mets are 
paid Rusty Stubb until the day he passed away on opening day. Bobby Bo was a special kind of contract. Here's what went down. They wanted to get rid of him going into the 2000 season. They needed to restructure his money so that way they could put off paying him and go after a pitcher. They went after Mike Hampton. Of course, that's the big deal. Octavio Dotel and Roger Sedano to Houston. The Mets get back Mike Hampton and Derek Bell. Mike Hampton, who was brought in after they got rid of Bonilla, left after that season. What happened in that draft when we got a compensatory pick? It turned into David Wright. You pay Bobby Bonilla for as long as you want. We got the captain. We got the captain. It's all that matters. Uh, number seven is the funny question. No lie, who's better looking, me or Big Sexy? For all those who don't know, Big Sexy is Bartolo Colon. Personally, it's Bartolo. No offense to me taking a shot at myself, but it's Big Sexy. Plain and simple. Uh, Baker Mayfield, is he is he the real deal? Yes. Yes, he is. Here's why I say that. The Browns are still not that very deeply talented. They have flaws, and this kid is winning football games. He has a swagger to him that this city has not seen since Bernie Kosar. And in the 80s, it wasn't really swagger. He just went to convict you. Um, Baker is winning with Jarvis Landry as his best wide receiver, who in my opinion is a number two at best. Uh, David Njoku is a young tight end coming up. He has a rookie running back. He has, for the first time in forever, does not have Joe Thomas protecting his blind side. He's winning games the way Browns fans want to win games, and that's he's just getting it done. They don't care how sexy it looks. They don't care how great it looks. They want to win games. And the way he went after Hugh Jackson, I love. Jack could have stayed home this year and taken his money from the Browns and then moved on with his life and went to Cincinnati next year. He didn't. He went to Cincinnati this year, the week before they played the Browns. Sorry. You uh, you don't have much respect in my, in my book there. Um, if I put Baker on the Pats or a crazy winning team, would he be the best in the NFL? It's too early to tell, dude. He hasn't played enough games. I said this in the live event from Ohio State. We need to not put Baker Mayfield on that banner of LeBron yet. Um, he will be... A, he will be a fixture in Cleveland, I believe, for a long time. Can he bring them a Super Bowl? Well, if he does that, Baker Mayfield will never buy a drink in the state of Ohio again. If he doesn't do that, Baker will go down as a great quarterback for the Browns and really the first franchise-type quarterback the Browns have had since they came back into the league in 1999. Was Couch going to be better? It's possible. But they didn't know how to draft an offensive line. Now they do. Um, first of all, putting Baker on the Patriots. Let's remember three things about the New, York, New England Patriots. They do not have a Super Bowl championship that does not have an asterisk on it. They are still running Charlie Weiss's playbook because Brady has had five, maybe six offensive coordinators. The offense has never changed. 
and Bill Belichick as a defensive coach. Put two and two together. Because Bill O'Brien's offense didn't look like that at Penn State or at Houston. And Josh McDaniels' offense wasn't run that way in Denver. It's easy to do somebody else's work and be good at it once you've done it for a long time. So let's not do the Patriots. Would Baker be the same thing in New Orleans, who is losing right now to the Cowboys 13-0 in the third quarter? With that stable of wide receivers led by Michael Thomas, he might be. Um, would he be the same if he was anywhere else? I don't know. A lot of Baker swagger has to do with who he is, but some of it comes from the city he plays in. The Browns are still the heartbeat of Cleveland no matter what the other teams are doing. The Cavs won a championship a couple years ago. The Indians were in the World Series the same year the Cavs won the championship, and people were selling out the Browns' training camp. It's just the way Cleveland's built. And the last question. I get to have dinner with five New York Mets, dead or alive. Who are they? Most of them are alive. One doesn't leave California. One is still playing. If I had to pick five Mets to have dinner with, dead or alive, well, number one would be Keith Hernandez. And I'll get to actually meet Keith in January at the Queens Baseball Convention. Uh, not only is Keith most likely the best defensive first baseman of all time, he is a very smart man, uh, also interested in the Civil War like I am. The guy did crossword puzzles in the, in the clubhouse, which is why Whitey Herzog didn't like him. Uh, second would be Tom Seaver, and that's because he is the franchise. He is the benchmark by which all players this franchise has ever had are measured. I also wore number 41 in summer ball because I wanted to be like, I wanted to be the next Tom Seaver. Uh, number three would be the captain because I really want to shake his hand and say thank you. Thank you for showing me my team was your team at all times. Number four would be the newest minted Hall of Famer that have, has graced the Mets, and that's Mike Piazza. Uh, to dine in his presence, because the dude can probably cook like a f champ, would be phenomenal. But the fifth one, and the fifth one people are going to be little wonder what's wrong with me about. The fifth one is actually somebody that I really enjoyed watching play uh, when I was a kid. And it's somebody that is so beyond popular in Mets history. And I would love to sit down with Jesse Orozco. Uh, for those who don't know, Jesse Orozco became the first reliever in Major League history to win three games in a playoff series. He threw the final pitch of both Game 6 of the 1986 World Series, or uh, LCS, which was maybe the best LCS game of all time. And, of course, he threw the final pitch of Game 7 of the 86 World Series, striking out Marty Barrett to send Shea Stadium into a frenzy. 
but I'd love to sit with Orozco, not because he um, did those things, but because he pitched for so long. What many people don't remember is Jesse Orozco was a New York Met for probably two months in the offseason between uh, 1999 and 2000, and then he was traded for Joe McEwing to the St. Louis Cardinals. But I'm going to add two more to that, Dom, and when you hear the two, you'll know why. The sixth person is John Franco. Uh, John Franco, to me, would be the guy that modern Met fans should have really wrapped their arms around. 15 seasons with the team, leads the team all time in saves. Something people are going to start talking about this year with Mariano Rivera basically guaranteed to go into the Hall of Fame. John Franco leads Major League Baseball all time as a left-handed pitcher in saves with 422. But he's already off the Hall of Fame ballot. Why? Because he wasn't everybody's favorite. And Franco bridged the gap from the multi-inning closer to the one-inning closer. Started his career in Cincinnati in the mid-80s, was traded to the Mets around Christmas of 1989 into the 1990 season. Stayed with the Mets through the 2004 season, cup of coffee with Houston in 2005, and then hung him up. And then the last one. I would love to sit down and just be able to talk baseball with Davey Johnson. You're talking about the winningest manager in franchise history. And also the guy who flew out to end the 69 World Series. To hear his stories of those old Baltimore Orioles hitting 40 home runs uh, with Atlanta um, later on in his career. Being a manager in the minor leagues. Winning the minor league World Series. And having guys like Strawberry and Gooden at the height of their potential. He would have a lot of stories to tell. So that's the end of the questions from Dom, and that's the end of our episode previewing the 27, 2018 excuse me, Conference Championship Weekend. Just a reminder, because we did go on a little bit with the questions. In alphabetical order, uh, ACC, Clemson, Big 12, Texas, Pac-12, Washington, SEC, Georgia, and I left the best for last. You'll be hearing the OHIO coming from Indianapolis on Saturday night, where I will be focused myself. As always, we can be found on social media, Big Recon on Sports on Facebook, at BR on Sports One on Twitter. Look for us on Google Play and Google Podcasts along with SoundCloud. Well, it's been a lot of fun again. Have a great week. We'll come back to you with a college football playoff preview sometime next week after Selection Sunday With um, once we know who the final four are. And keep an eye on Facebook. If the deal goes down with Robinson Cano going to the Mets, we will come to you live to break it down. This is The Big Recon. Have a great week, guys. We'll talk to you soon.